Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks to my panelists for uh, joining me up here. And again, I'm sorry you don't have the slides. You're going to get them. But I'm a strong believer that, that cases should be a surprise. And uh, you'll vote better if you don't know what's coming. So uh, you will get, but you will get these handouts. All right. So uh, let's start with our first case. And we're going to really be focusing on new drugs and new strategies for ART. So our first case, RW, is a 49-year-old executive diagnosed with HIV five years ago. He's generally been reluctant to start, but now he has a CD4 of 310, a viral load of 87,000, and he's willing to start. Um, he had wild-type virus back at the time of diagnosis. He has uh, diabetes with the not-great control, refuses it to take insulin, non-nephrotic range proteinuria with the GFR of 55. He's got hyperlipidemia that's somewhat controlled on uh, fibrates and uh, statin. He smokes. He's got normal liver enzymes, a normal HLA-B5701. Uh, he said his adherence with the meds he takes, but is not looking forward to adding a bunch more and wants to keep it as simple as possible. Okay. So, first of all, assuming you're going to use a nuke backbone, which one would you use? Tenofovir FTC, Abacavir 3TC, AZT 3TC, none of the above. I'll use a nuke sparing regimen. Okay, we've got a lot of, uh, half the people want to use a Abacavir 3TC and a third want to use Tenofovir FTC. Panel, what do you guys think? Tripp, you're, you're nodding. I don't know what that means. So tell us what you think. I was nodding off, actually. <laughs> no, it's, uh, um, I would choose Tenofovir FTC here of, of these choices. I, I, realizing that his creatinine clearance is 55 and he will have to be monitored pretty closely for that. I would steer clear of a back of your 3TC because this guy has uh, a number of cardiac risk factors, including smoking, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes. You didn't tell us about family history. But that's the group in particular where the um, abacavir-associated cardiac events occurred, people with multiple risk factors. And AZT3TC, I think, is a um, toxic and twice-a-day drug. Anybody on the panel have a differing viewpoint? Well, I, just mainly because I like to tease and argue with Tripp. Um, don't think abacavir-3TC is necessarily off the table. I think the data on the cardiovascular risk is equivocal. And um, I, I do think that given all the circumstances, uh, Tenofovir is going to be a really challenging drug. He already has prognoria. Um, he has some degree of renal insufficiency. I, I would be thinking that the potential for Tenofovir-associated clinically relevant toxicity is actually significantly higher than the Abacavir-associated toxicity. So I might we I might be a little more inclined. Now, what I kind of wish is we had a better uh, number four. And the problem, I think, is we, we don't know how to do it well without putting nukes into it. So we might wish for a better four, but I would probably be inclined to start a vacuum 3TC rather than Tenofovir. So you, you want us to get into an argument. I, I um, will just challenge you and say that if you follow the creatinine, you can take away tenofovir and switch to something else, and, and it, it will respond. If the guy has an MI, 
It's hard to get that cardiac yeah, tissue but back it's there. Because he is, well, but he's a smoker with diabetes and renal insufficiency. I mean, you exactly. think the back of exactly. is actually the problem here? I'm not so sure. <laughs> um, but but I, I take your point, and I, I think, you know, wise men may make different decisions, and one never knows exactly And, and us, right. too. <laughs> Any other? Dr. Schooley would be the decision maker if we can waken him up. You know, I, I actually think the discussion's been good. I, the early um, association of Avacavir and uh, 3TC with uh, cardiovascular disease risk was very controversial because of the concerns about channeling bias and it was not a randomized trial. And the bias of the people who did that study going into it was that it would be the safe one. So you worry about whether in this European experience uh, what came out of it was the opposite of what they expected because the people who got Abacavir 3TC were the ones that they thought uh, were the ones uh, that they didn't want to risk giving Zenofavir to because of uh, renal risk factors too. So I, uh, I think there's, it'd be better to have a fourth choice here, but I, I don't think it's uh, uh, worth losing your hair over uh, uh, a uh, <laughs> choice of uh, using Abacavir 3TC. Let me just add one thing, and that is along with condom use, mosquito avoidance, smoking cessation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obvious, but it's really important. I mean, that's the one thing we can really. Yeah. All right. Well, I better move on because if we have this much discussion on every slide, we will <laughs> only get to half of the first case. Um, so let's. Uh, so this back of an MI risk is still a very controversial question. Um, there's conflicting data now from observational and prospective studies. There have been a number of prospective of proposed pathogenic models that you can see here. And the current guidelines say to use with caution in patients with a high cardiovascular risk. Uh, I thought it was interesting. These are just some of the recent published studies, not the original ones. Uh, and again, even with the recent published studies, there's yes, no, yes, no, yes, no in terms of risk. I, I like this comment. I borrowed this slide from Paul Sachs uh, from the uh, from the uh, editorial, how difficult it is to find a consensus can be exemplified by the fact that even identical data sources, the VA Health Administration, um, analyzed by different uh, investigators can lead to conflicting results. So there was a VA study that said there was a risk and a VA study said there wasn't. Um, recently uh, uh, at uh, CROI, uh, one of our own faculty members, uh, Priscilla Shu. Uh, suggested that uh, abacavir was associated with impaired endothelial function, which could explain the risk. Uh, there was another study um, uh, published in AIDS that suggested increased platelet activation in vitro. Um, and uh, a study from the ACTG suggesting higher uh, high sensitivity CRP increases with abacavir. So there is a there are at least uh, mechanisms proposed to explain this association, but it still remains uh, pretty unclear. So, um, you know, Tripp, I would just argue uh, in, your, in your argument that you would use tenofovir. This guy has a lot of risk for progressive kidney dysfunction. His kidney function is certainly not going to get better. And with his hemoglobin A1C, probably going to get worse. If you add tenofovir, what do you think the likelihood is that he'll still be on it a year from now? 
I would point out that he has proteinuria, an untreated HIV infection. So if he has an element of HIV nephropathy here, it could actually get better. It's uncommon in white guys, but it can occur. You know, we left out a really critical piece of data here, which is ACTG 5202, head-to-head comparison of tenofovir-based versus abacavir-based. And tenofovir-based was not only more efficacious from a virologic point of view, but less toxic, head-to-head, placebo-controlled. Dr. Hicks, I think he forgot that one. And his viral load was 75,000, is that right? So the efficacy difference was seen in the high viral load population. All right, let's vote again now, because you're going to now decide to do what I would have done, that nobody on the panel wanted to do, and not use either of these drugs. And you have, just to emphasize that there are seven, you get, everything is listed there twice. So assuming that you don't want to use a nuke, what would you do? Boosted PI plus relpegavir, boosted PI plus non-nuke, Ravaroc if he's R5, tropic, that footnote's supposed to be there, relpegavir plus a non-nuke, et cetera, et cetera, or no nukes, are you out of your mind? Couldn't possibly use them. All right, so most people who, the plurality here wanted to use PI plus relpegavir, some PI plus non-nukes. Of course, there's not really a right answer here, because as we've mentioned already, there are no good studies documenting a clear winner in terms of nuke-sparing regimens. ACTG 5142 may become closest with lopinavir, ritonavir, and defavirenz, but it was a very effective regimen, but not a very well-tolerated regimen. And most of the other studies have shown, you know, have been small or have shown problems. Here's the latest example of the failures of nuke-sparing options, darunavir plus relpegavir, a regimen that everybody assumed would be great and, in fact, was the popular choice here or a version of it. And it showed 43% failure by week 48 in patients with high viral loads. Now, we don't have a good explanation for this, and I would point out that this is a regimen that's now being studied in a very large randomized trial in Europe that hasn't been stopped yet. So it could be that this is a fluke, that it's a great regimen, and we'll find that out with the NEAT study. But for now, there's this cautionary note that a regimen that looked like it would be great turned out to not perform so well in an uncontrolled trial. This really is confusing data. You'd think even boosted darunavir alone would do better than this. So we don't really know why this study turned out the way it was. It's kind of a message to us, I think, in 2012 that we shouldn't guess anymore just because you think a regimen might work. You know, I wouldn't use it. Well, they haven't explained why this is. Right. They've looked at everything that they could find on that study and cannot explain why all the failures. Is anybody on the panel convinced that we should have used a nuke-sparing regimen? Well, I think that would have been a good idea, but I think the struggle is what is the nuke-sparing regimen? I think we have ideas, as Tripp mentioned, in 2012. We need to have evidence that it's right. And this, I think, is the prime example of why things that seem so obvious need to be subjected to some scientific scrutiny. This just is a mess. So that's why I can't remember 
outside of a clinical trial, starting someone on a nuke-sparing regimen in the last five plus years. Just don't know what to do. Can I just comment that, you know, again, I think that one of the options to start a phenomenon based and then not to be frightened of switching if there are toxicities associated with the original regimen, you don't have to throw the baby out with the wash. You can make a single drug change. In this setting, I actually chose four because as long as we're trying to avoid complications, any protease-based regimen to me in a diabetic, dyslipidemias, smoker, and all that runs some risk of having to then reevaluate. And we often have been forced to do that. And so I chose your fourth choice and added 3TC. I'm not a big fan of two-drug regimens, unless there's a PI maybe, and you kind of have no choice. But I chose four. This is just a slide pointing out the problems with some of the studies of nuke-sparing regimens to date, and that there are now two studies that will be fully powered and maybe will finally give us an answer after all these years. The one that I mentioned, boosted darunavir and raltegravir, and then another one boosted darunavir and mirabirac. But right now we just don't have a recommended nuke-sparing regimen, although people are sometimes forced to use them. All right, case two. JT, 28-year-old male flight attendant, newly diagnosed with HIV. CD4 is 421, viral load 150,000, wild-type virus. He's healthy otherwise, has normal labs. He has an HIV-negative partner and knows about the prevention benefits, so he's very eager to start. But he does international flights across the Pacific and the Atlantic, so he wants a simple once-a-day regimen, preferably a single tablet, though he's not requiring that. So what would you recommend? We have two single-tablet regimens here, tenofovir FTC efavirenz, tenofovir FTC ropivirine, and then other options would be raltegravir, a boosted PI, something else, or the perfect regimen for JT doesn't exist yet. Advise him to wait. All right. So people like a favorite. It's interesting. What do you think, panel? Well, you said he was the flight attendant, not the pilot, right? Yeah. Yeah. But he could still spill hot coffee on your lap. No, I mean, I think, as you point out, there's no perfect regimen. I think if you were the pilot, I'd probably go with regimen number three, just take two pills. And pilots are regimented enough to be able to do things twice a day, at least one would hope, unless they're melting down over Arizona. But the first regimen, if he tolerates it, which most people do, works pretty well, and you know pretty quickly whether they will. And the other reason I like efavirenz here is once he gets suppressed and steady-state pharmacokinetics, this is a drug combination that we know tolerates some dosing misses, and he gets out of his normal routine because he's eight time zones away, and he misses a dose, probably has no effect whatsoever. So I think that's a really good one. And you can always ask with any patient if the side effect profile is really impairing as regards his work. You can always say, okay, let's do this instead. But my first choice, I agree with the audience, should be the tried and true. You'd probably warn him not to start this, you know, pop his first one as he's getting on that plane to Bangkok. Thank you. 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 Thank you
Well, you guys are much more optimistic than I was. I have not had much luck giving this drug to people with varying time shifts who have to take it at different times of day and then be alert when they get to work. So I wouldn't have even considered this uh, unless he had a month or two before to practice with it. But Rupivirine uh, um, is going to be hard, too, because you've got to take it with a full meal. His viral load, viral load is high. Reltegravir, yeah. he really wants a once a day. Let's go on and see what I got here. So this is, these are kind of the pros and cons I had, not of the drugs in general, but of the drugs for this particular patient. Um, and um, I was being a little bit uh, cynical, but I was going to argue that actually the perfect drug for him does not exist. And you could argue to wait a couple months, how many months is it going to be, August, for albitegravir, which will not have these issues uh, of, for him, and it will be a single tablet regimen. Of course, you could easily start him on something while waiting, with the promise of potentially switching, uh, but the, the so-called quad will not have the, the shift issues, the meal issues, and might give him what he wants without those drawbacks. Um, let's see. The, the only concern there is just about the durability issue that Chuck raised. Uh, you know, we really don't know. Uh, we think of integrase inhibitor, particularly L-vitegravir, as having a low genetic barrier to resistance. Will it really tolerate someone who's going to be taking the pills, you know, plus minus four hours or eight hours? Good point. We don't know that. So let me just quickly go through the data on um, L-vitegravir, since uh, I was part of the purpose of this is to update people on CROI. So Paul Sachs presented the data on the... Um, Quad versus uh, tenofovir FTC efavirenz at week 48 um, with evidence showing that uh, it was non-inferior. Both, as you can see, both uh, arms performed extremely well um, at both low and high viral loads. Um, as you might expect, there was better CD4 increase with the quad than with efavirenz, which we pretty much expect with all drugs other than that aren't uh, efavirenz. Um, among patients with confirmed uh, virologic failure or rebound, there was uh, resistance uh, in the albitegravir arm, and as Tripp said, uh, there, the genetic barrier is uh, not high for this drug, so don't be fooled by the fact that it's boosted, that, that boosting uh, protection only applies to PIs. Uh, in terms of safety, there was more nausea with albitegravir. It tended to be grade one and, and fairly short-lived. Of course, there were more CNS side effects and rash with the fabrins. 1.4% uh, discontinued uh, quad due to renal abnormalities, um, and there was, as you would expect, a greater increase in, in creatinine and an estimated GFR on the quad due to the cobacystat effect of uh, decreasing renal secretion of creatinine. So you could expect about a 0.14 milligram per deciliter increase in creatinine shortly after starting. Um, most of that uh, increase occurs very quickly and then doesn't uh, tend to progress. Uh, cholesterol and lipid changes were uh, greater in the efavirenz arm compared to the uh, quad arm. And then uh, we also saw another study comparing uh, quad with uh, boosted atazanavir. Again, very um, uh, good results in both arms, both at high and viral loads. Uh, similar CD4 increases. Um, and, of course, resistance, as you would expect, would be better in the protease inhibitor containing arm with no PI resistance, whereas you do see integrase resistance with patients who failed the quad. And that, I think, will continue to be the main reason why we use PIs when we do use PIs and could be a potentially attractive option for this guy, who, even though it's a few pills a day, uh, given his erratic schedule, 
uh, he wouldn't have to worry about resistance if he missed doses. Uh, in terms of safety, um, similar rates of AEs, diarrhea, nausea. Of course, bilirubin was uh, more pronounced on uh, atazanavir. Um, the creatinine increase was greater on quad compared to boosted atazanavir. Um, and uh, triglycerides, interestingly, were higher in the atazanavir arm compared to the, the quad arm. So just to summarize the, the quad data, we are expecting approval probably in August of the quad, but not of the individual components, which would, will probably come out sometime next year. Any other comments about that? Uh, so yes, can we make, make one comment? At least from my understanding of the resistance data is that for those people who are thinking that maybe they could salvage an l bitrigovir fail with Raptor. We're coming back to that. Okay. We're coming back to that. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. So who do you think the ideal patient is for the quad? Uh, well, I think the quad is going to fill, is going to have some advantages over a lot of the agents we use. So the clear advantage over tenofovir FTC efavirenz is the lack of CNS side effects, just the fact that it's easier to prescribe to people without having to go through all the education that's required to prescribe efavirenz. I think the advantage over rilpivirine and the and the the single tablet ropivirine regimen will be the lack of the requirement to take a meal, the lack of the viral load, uh, baseline viral load effect, and then the advantage over raltegravir is once a day dosing with a single tablet. For me, the, the one group that stands out as the people who will, you know, the people who may still need to be, continue taking what they're taking are the PI group where you prescribe PIs due to concerns about adherence and resistance. That those people will continue to, I think, be appropriate candidates for, for that class. Any thoughts? No, I just repeat the durability caution. You know, we have 48 weeks of data, and we, yeah. we really don't know how durable this is going to be. You sound like you're an early switcher, Dr. G. Well, I, uh, we haven't seen too many examples. I am. I, I, we haven't seen too many examples of drugs that do well at 48 weeks and then crash and burn. Um, usually at 48 weeks, uh, if something is, is effective at 48 weeks and this was very effective, you know, durability is usually, uh, it would be surprising if the durability didn't, wasn't made. And I guess forgivability is the other. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's go on to case three. LS, 35-year-old accountant, so I guess we can say he's adherent, an accountant, with newly diagnosed HIV infection, probably acquired in the last six months, for CD4 is uh, 310, viral load 64,000, genotype 103N on uh, baseline. No other medical problems, normal transaminases and renal function. She's ready to start therapy. So we know um, resistance is still being transmitted. This is the most recent update of the CDC surveillance data uh, showing, you know, above, it looks like 17, 18% of uh, patients um, with recent infection being uh, having a baseline resistance, about 15% of all cases. And, of course, uh, NNRTI resistance is among the most common type of baseline resistance, uh, with 103N being particularly common, as we saw in this case. So, what do you recommend for her? Uh, PI, Ropivirine, Etrovirine, Efavirenz, Raltegravir. I'm stalling for time. Give me a tropism assay or something else.
All right. So uh, most people want to go with a PI. There's some interest in uh, raltegravir. Interestingly, um, some interest in rilpivirine, which hasn't really been studied in this indication. Not much in the atrovirine panel. What do you, what do you all think? Well, um, it's, you know, uh, rilpivirine, at least in vitro, should be active with K103N. So I think that is in the ballpark, although you're kind of getting away from data-based uh, selections there. You know, if you're an evidence-based medicine person, you'd like a bigger uh, clinical database to support that. It kind of depends. I think, again, it's an individualizing of treatment for the patient, and the whole issue of uh, for that individual is the protease inhibitor with its potentially more GI side effects. Now you're, you're thinking of three prescriptions instead of one, although now we have copay cards for everything. So that probably isn't going to be a huge cost differential. But I just, um, I, I don't know, in our practice, and maybe I should just restrict it to me, I find myself less and less going toward uh, PIs as options. And, Again, the, having the one pill, uh, trips getting ready to shoot me down here, but the one pill um, integrase inhibitor, I think, will also, you know, enter into play here in a meaningful way. But I, I've been impressed at how much patients have really gravitated toward the simple, the one pill uh, option. So I would uh, let let her tell me what seems most suitable for her. But I guess I also think, you know, raltegravir, even though it's BID, a lot of people really don't like BID. They think it really is a dramatically less likely to be adherent regimen. But here you have an accountant who's, you know, all of our stereotypes would say she's very organized. And, and so I think uh, uh, number five, which one out of five people in the audience, like, could also be a really good option from my perspective if the twice a day was not something she didn't want to do. Trip, were you going to shoot him down or was that? He's, he's yeah, no, I, he always I completely disagree with everything. <laughs> now, my concern here is does she have archived minor species? Um, she's got the K103N, but she's not on drugs right now. She doesn't have drug pressure. So could she have other NNRTI uh, minor species that would come out? Uh, or could she have an M184V? that reverted because um, she's not on 3TC or FTC right now. And, and so I would side with the audience and go with the PI-based regimen just because that, of that risk. I, as, as hard as it is for me to say, you know, Tripp, that's a good observation on your part. <laughs> there was a recent paper that I, I Tripp can quote the page and number and the, all the authors, but the there was a recent paper that showed that people with transmitted resistance, even if the regimen that was selected did not include any drugs to which resistance appeared to be present, they had a lesser likelihood of having a virologic suppression than a similar patient who had no transmitted resistance. Again, I think speaking to your concerns about other resistance mutations that are present below the detection threshold of our population-based genotypic resistance tests. So I think that's a fair call. Um, I, th I think Raltegravir, there's only two cases reported of transmitted resistance. There's one other that's being written up. But uh, I think that would be a pretty safe bet as well, even if there was 3TC resistance, which is uncommon in transmitted. 
I'd be nervous about that, Chuck. Of course you would. If she has an M184V, which is a minor species, you don't want to give her tenofovir or raltegravir. Well, I think that's really unlikely. And, you know, raltegravir, even in the benchmark trial where there was, they had PSS, GSS of zero, no other active agent, more than 50 percent of people suppressed in that population. So I think our concerns about so-called susceptibility or genetic barrier issues, I think, are overstated. And I feel very confident that tenofovir, FTC, raltegravir would work. Otherwise, what's the point of doing any resistance? Why would you risk it? You know the PI is going to succeed here. And boosted atazanavir or boosted darunavir, very well tolerated. But, Tripp, while I agree with you, aren't you, by committing her to a PI and saying that none of the other drugs are reliable for the rest of her life, are you going to preclude her from using any low-barrier drug? Boosted darunavir, very well tolerated, good drug. People can take it for years to come. All right, let me ask the panel this. What if her resistance test had been done at the time of or shortly after acute infection? Would you then feel more comfortable that a 103N was just a 103N? And then you might pick one of the other ones on the list. I guess this is really for Tripp because you're the naysayer here about the resistance test. Well, we didn't hear from our other distinguished panel members. But if you got it right after seroconversion, you could probably be more assured that that is the single mutation that she has. I would agree with you there. Susan Little's data looking at persistence of resistance in acute infection suggests that it sticks around longer than people who acquire it under selective pressure because they were more likely to be colonized with a single mutant. And you're looking at that mutation rather than just competition between mixed quasi-species. So, you know, I agree with Tripp. It would be less likely if you had it earlier. But there's less of a risk here probably of a back mutation than if somebody had selected it and you were missing it that way. I agree, though, that I think the safe bet here is a protease inhibitor, and that's the one that's been around longest. And if you're pushed to go to something else because of side effects, you can always do that. All right. Any other comments? Just the only comment is that I think most of us are still not looking for integration resistance at baseline. And I think based on Chuck's comment, that's still appropriate. Does anyone disagree with that? Should we be asking for that as part of our panel? No. What if you find resistance to, say, a multi-class resistance on your initial genotype? Would that then prompt you to then order an integration? Yes. All right. And in terms of etrovirine, just to review the predictors of etrovirine susceptibility, we now have two weighted scoring systems. And I'm not showing this because I think etrovirine is the right answer, but it is a possibility. One is the monogram scoring system that predicts phenotypic susceptibility to etrovirine. The other is the TBATEC scoring system that predicts how etrovirine would have done in the duet studies. You get a certain number of points for each mutation. You add them up, and then you can see the interpretation at the bottom. We kind of assume that what applies to etrovirine may apply to rilpivirine more or less based on in vitro data, but rilpivirine has never really been studied in either treatment experience patients or patients with baseline resistance. So if you were going to use an NNRTI in this woman and go by the data, etrovirine would be a better studied drug than rilpivirine, but some people have been making the extrapolation to rilpivirine. I don't know how you feel about that extrapolation. No, I think you're right. There is some 
cross-resistance, but there's also distinct isolates. But there, there is one study, again, that's an extrapolation to use to this patient, where people were on two nukes and an efavirenz-based regimen, and then randomized to an etravirine-based regimen or a PI. And that study was stopped early because the PI was superior. This was done in a developed world setting, so you might think, well, those patients had multiple, multiple. Developing. Sorry, developing. Had multiple, multiple mutations. But it does give you some pause about this whole idea that a K103N, you could go to etravirine and expect. Although I think in that study, you know, a lot of those people were heavily treated with nivirapine. Yep. Had had long periods of failure on nivirapine. We know that nivirapine is more likely to select for 181C, which, as you can see, is a mutation that gives you a lot of points on this, on these algorithms. So that could be the reason. Yeah. May not apply. And I think, Tripp, you brought up the issue of mutations we're not seeing in your first comment, and I think that's even more relevant here. We just, you know, the difference, I guess, is that we have a scoring system, and so we feel like we have some control of that. But if you're just using population-based sequencing, I think you could anticipate there's going to be more there than that. All right. Our last case, FG, is a 32-year-old teacher with HIV infection, started on tenofovir FTC and relpegavir because of concerns that the patient had about efavirenz and PI side effects. She took her medications daily but often missed evening doses of relpegavir, not doubling the next morning dose when she did, and now has a CD4 of 589 and a viral load of 3,800. So what tests do you order? HIV genotype, genopheno, integrase geno, integrase pheno, one and three, two and four, or one at all, and give me a tropism test while you're at it. Those of you who have deep pockets or well-insured people. All right, so... Um, uh, over a third want a standard genotype and an integrase genotype. How's that sound, you guys? Steve? Yeah. I, mean, I think that that's uh, reasonable. I have not used phenotypes at this stage based um, someone's not been on a PI. Um, and uh, the tropism assay, I think we're seeing some new assays being evaluated now in U.S. trials. Some of the assays are available in Europe and are part of the recommendations for a tropism um, assessment. Uh, I think that may change. It's been the cost that's been the most um, uh, of greatest concern, I think, in the United States. So I think we'll have some other options down the line. Can I, can I um, just ask about the, um, how, are we assuming that you can get sort of whatever you want? Yeah, because uh, yes. it's California. So oh, we're not in I North forgot, Carolina anymore. <laughs> okay. Well, the issue of the uh, integrase test in right now, without another integrase option, or even six months from now, when we presumably will have another integrase inhibitor, if you got, if you did an integrase genotype now, and you did not show significant presence of resistance mutations, how many people would say, oh, I want to keep using raltegravir then? I mean, I just, I'm wondering how we're going to use, as we select our next regimen, the results from the integrase genotype. And if we have to be parsimonious with the use of our resources, 
in you know, April of 2012, how much are we going to use that integrated genotype result to actually influence our but next But that's not really the reason you'd be using the genotype, right? Trip, what would you, I mean, what, if you ordered it. Well, Trip always genotype. is the opposite of whatever well, I say. Why, it doesn't matter what he wrong. believes. It's just whatever I say, <laughs> Trip wants the other thing. Chuck, I completely disagree with that. <laughs> um, now, the, the integrase here, we know that L-vitegravir is cross-resistant to raltegravir, so that's not why we're ordering it. it. It's for the third one, the next one to come along, dolutegravir, which has activity against some resistant strains for both raltegravir and L-vitegravir. And so I think that's the reason to get the And so you're going to take that information and just store it away for the future in case you want to go back to the class? Is that the idea? It's, uh, it's available on expanded access. If we really wanted to stick with an integrase inhibitor, it's once a day. It doesn't require boosting. If, if there was no demonstrable integrase resistance, would you feel comfortable retaining raltegravir as part of the treatment? If there's no resistance on this uh, genotype, I think you go back to the patient and say, hey, Why aren't you taking are you really taking your meds? Because the yeah. test suggests that you're probably not. So I don't think there's much harm if you have that conversation in kind of an open-ended way and say, Let, why don't we just try taking this regimen again? Or finding out what the problem is, why, why she's not able to take it. But I think it's okay to reintroduce it and retest as well. Only 1% voted for an integrase phenotype. Is there ever any reason to order an integrase phenotype? I don't think so. Because it doesn't tell you anything about future drugs. So, so genotype, I think, would be a good idea, and I would agree that the standard phenotype, well, either a standard or an integrase phenotype really is not necessary here. What you really want to know about is genotypic resistance to the nucleosides and the integrase inhibitor. So you order an HIV genotype and integrase inhibitor, uh, integrase genotype. You get a 184B, a 148H, and a 140S. What does this mean? The integrase inhibitor class is toast. She may still respond to dolutegravir. She may still respond to elvitegravir. She will resuppress on raltegravir. She takes it. Hell, I just learned about 184B, and now you want me to know about integrase indications. <laughs> Give me a break. Please vote. are not happy having to learn this new... Uh, they want to break. Drugs. But um, half the people yeah. say she'll still respond to dolutegravir. Any uh, comments from the panel? What do you think? There's pilot data to suggest that this could be true if you double the dose of dolutegravir. So she selected out two of the primary integrase inhibitor mutations, and the one to pay attention to is the 148. That's the one that actually impacts dolutegravir as well. And so we, we I guess you're going to show us that. Yeah, well, I, let me go back to the first, before I show the Viking, I'm trying to go back, but it's not letting me go back. Go back, please. Back, please. Back. Chuck, I agree with you. We should go back. We should go back. All right, you guys agreed on something. All right, so this is a slide showing evolution of integrase inhibitor resistance with increased time after failure. And you can see that, at least on raltegravir, people tend to start out with 155, and then over time, if you continue to take raltegravir, they tend to, they tend to evolve this 148 mutation that causes greater dolutegravir cross-resistance. But the, uh, the Viking study um, looked at uh, double-dose dolutegravir, twice-daily dosing, in patients who had a 148 mutation, 
and you see um, some response. Now, again, this is not necessarily complete suppression. They defined response as undetectable viral load or a greater than 0.7 log reduction. So it remains to be seen whether this is really going to be a winner or just something that has partial activity, but at least it holds out some promise for being able to sequence in this class. There is updated data from this presented by Vincent Soriano at the European AIDS meeting last fall. He presented the 24-week data less than 50 responses, oh. and the double-dose dolutegravir was associated with something like 80% of people. They optimized their background and used double-dose uh, dolutegravir and were able to respond. So to the, the panel, is there any, um, any harm in continuing raltegravir? I mean, not that there's any benefit necessarily, but what would happen if you had a 148 and you kept going? Would there be additional mutations that would accumulate that would further reduce susceptibility to dolutegravir, or are you kind of done at that point? Do we know that? I'm not sure we know that. I'm we? not sure. Chip, maybe you're the... I don't know that we know that either, and if you were going to do that, you'd be obviously adding to her woes with your other drugs as well. And if you weren't and you had her suppressed, you wouldn't accumulate mutations, so uh, there's no reason to do it. Okay. All right. Trying to go forward now. Panel. Yes, we're done. So we're right <laughs> on time. So thank you for your attention. And now we have uh, we have questions, right? Okay, we have time for a few questions for our break. Um, and um, so, uh, challenging case: 13-year-old. Um, young man arrived in the Bay Area, never treated wild type virus, CD4 1, viral load of 565,000, lost 40% of his lean body weight, now down to 25 kilograms. Um, for this very ill adolescent, what would be your first line regimen? We've talked about lots of choices and people who are sort of adults and their accountants and all that. Um, do you just pull out all stops? Does anyone have anything they want to offer? Had OIs, can esophagitis, CMV? Well, my, my experience with adult adolescents, at least, because I don't really work with true adolescents, is that they are likely to get lost to follow-up and likely to stop meds. So a PI-based regimen would be my choice here to avoid that risk of resistance until he's mature. Uh, and the flip side of that would be simple, simple, simple is the best. So maybe one pill. Um, a Favarin's-based regimen. We know a Favarin's works at very high viral loads. I don't think we ha and protease inhibitors do. We don't have that information on some of the other choices. It's only 25 kilograms. Yeah. And so, and there's obviously genetic predispositions to handling a Favarin's. Uh, we don't know how he would handle it. Um, it we may make him quite toxic with a uh, one pill once a day, a Favarin's-containing regimen. Right, Steve, I agree with, with that. But can I just ask my esteemed colleagues in the, um, on the panel here a question that, ha that bothers me, but of course um, I'm easily bothered. But uh, people who start a, a ritonavir-boosted PI regimen as their initial treatment and don't succeed, their viral load may suppress transiently and then rebounds. And we've seen from multiple studies that doing resistance tests does not show the presence of significant on paper resistance. 
But is that virus that has been treated with these drugs and now apparently is growing in a person who's taking some and often with measurable amounts of the drugs in their bloodstream, is that virus truly the same as one in a patient who's never been on therapy at all? We, we say, oh, well, use a boosted PI because if they fail, there's no resistance. But I, I just can't in my brain believe that that virus is unaffected. If so, how is it growing? Because in they're, the not presence? Taking any, they're not taking their medication. I don't think that's true. And I don't the think they're the... not taking it at all. Because well, their viral load was 100,000 when they start. Now it's 8,000, and, and yet we see no resistance. I just can't fathom that that virus is one that's fully susceptible. Well, remember the old Abbott A63 study where they simply told people, hey, take your medicine, and they suppressed, which argues that their virus, whether it's the same or not, I don't know, but it certainly hadn't become resistant because when they did take their medicine, they were fine. So I, I think that argues that whatever is happening to the virus, it's not becoming resistant to PIs. I think we're going to move on. We've got a number of good questions and actually sort of more strategy issues. Um, one question is what about sort of the idea of induction maintenance therapy, either for this patient starting hard then pulling back or other patients, um, uh, the one patient who we were worried about, it's an auger-based regimen, but starting with a PI, Raltuprevir, and then pulling back on um, an with you know, to minimize risk. Any, what's the evidence right now on, on that approach? I don't think you need to do it. The, uh, you're talking about with people with very, quote, very high viral load levels, over half a million. We know that protease-based, conventional protease-based or efavirenz-based regimens work for that, and you do not need to add additional agents. Yeah, I think when you do that, you're more likely to run into side effects that will make them less likely to be adherent in the long run anyway. And uh, I agree with Tripp. There's no real evidence to support induction maintenance. Our simple regimens now are more effective than our complex yeah. regimens before, so it's just it's no longer a, a need. Along the same line, the question is, you know, in some of these N, NRTI sparing regimens, we're looking at two drug approaches, the, the um, uh, Moravaroc, um, is a two-drug regimen. Why are we doing that? Um, well, it's, it's never been the number of drugs. It's been the number of mutations between you and, and lack of control. And when you have a boosted protease on board, you've got several mutations in that one drug. So it's, it's not counting drugs. It's counting mutations and combining that with potency that gets you a regimen that works. And I think you, somebody said on the panel, given what we know about the, the pretty good efficacy of protease inhibitor monotherapy, it's hard to imagine that, that you're going to be able to see a big difference between a three-drug PI regimen and a two-drug PI regimen. So I guess the question is that many of these two-drug regimens are all of them essentially are PI-based. Yeah. I mean, we're not looking at integrase plus NNRTI, anything like that. So there, that does kind of support that. And you wouldn't want to use an integrase, an NNRTI, um, and 3TC either. Yeah, right. Um, the uh, question, one question that I think is sort of a lesson for all of us is, what does STR stand for um, in the abbreviation for the quad pill? Single, Single tablet, tablet regimen. regimen. <laughs> right. Okay. So it is, a, it is a caveat that we need to be Marketing. careful about abbreviations. Um, uh, sometimes they seem obvious to all of us, but unless you're... 
and other areas. Well, some people call it uh, FD, fixed dose combination. Yeah, so FDC, there's a lot of Yes, exactly. Um, and another question is about, uh, you know, we focus on tenofovir and renal insufficiency, but what about some of the PI-based regimens? Obviously, indinavir is not high on our list, but atazanavir, many people are still using. What about atazanavir and renal insufficiency mechanisms, concerns? Well, I think especially if you combine that boosted PI with tenofovir, the evidence suggests that the likelihood of uh, renal toxicity is increased, and most people believe that's because the tenofovir exposure increases. So I, I do think, and then adesanivir of the commonly used PIs, the one that also has some degree of renal insufficiency. So I think you need to incorporate that into decision-making in individual patients. A question is, since we're talking about STR single tablet regimens, are we, seeing, are we looking forward to any PI-based um, uh, uh, single tablet regimens? There's a darunavir-based one that's being worked on with um, the tenofovir prodrug, GS7340, plus FTC, plus cobacistat, the booster, plus darunavir. That'll be the first one pill once a day for uh, proteasin. And I, I think it comes with a knife and fork. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. But it's only one pill. It's yeah. only one pill. <laughs> right. And you cannot cut it in half or right. thirds or right. uh, take it with ketchup. It comes with a lubricant, though. So yeah, it's it's <laughs> lubricant. Um, uh, you won't go there. Um, uh, since we're talking about Kobe Sistat a little bit and renal insufficiency, does anyone want to comment so we're going to see more and more um, fixed combination uh, tablets with Kobe Sistat as part of the combination as a booster to replace um, ritonavir. Um, does anyone want to comment on the concerns about interpreting serum creatinines and what that means for clinicians? Well, I, I think we're going to have to learn that when we prescribe a cobacistat containing regimen, we're going to see a little bit of an increase in serum creatinine, which will translate into a, a, a decline in estimated GFR. Um, it's not a sign of renal toxicity, but it does make it a little tricky because then you have to interpret further declines in, in kidney functions differently. And um, in some cases, it could be uh, tenofovir nephrotoxicity. For that reason, this uh, quad is only going to be approved in people with estimated GFR above 70, not because they're worried about renal safety below that, but because once you, if you started it in somebody with a GFR between 60 and 70, you'd already be going into the range where you have to uh, separate the dosing and, and decrease the dose of tenofovir, so it would become very complicated. Dolutegravir um, inhibits a different renal transporter, but also causes an increase in the serum creatinine of about 0.1 to 0.2. So this will complicate any tenofovir-containing regimen. You might be a, a bit confused, although both COBE and dolutegravir do it in the first couple of weeks, and then it stabilizes. Right. So and the pattern's a bit different. And the, the amount of elevation in serum creatinine is, is quite modest, 0.1 to 0.2. If you get 0 0.4, 0 0.5, it's no longer fair to attribute that just to the, um, the secretion of creatinine. A mechanism, and that clearly means now you need to look for proteinuria and other evidence of true renal toxicity. So I would say expect a 1 to maybe 0.2, and anything more than that you need to really pursue more aggressively. Yeah, in the uh, quad versus efavirin study, all of the cases of verified tenofovir nephrotoxicity had creatinine elevations greater than 0.4. Now, it doesn't mean 
that's going to be true all the time. But it, it, it was useful to know that with elevations of less than 0.4, they didn't see any sign of proximal tubular dysfunction. The last question, I think, I'm not sure if it was written before the panel addressed this issue about when do you order a baseline integrase um, resistance test. I think obviously as we see quad available uh, and we get start to see more data from the CDC and other um, um, uh, groups uh, looking for um, integrase resistance, we probably will need to incorporate that. But at this point, still it's premature. I know some labs, um, the lab that we use, um, we'll actually store the specimen, and we, if we get an initial um, specimen that shows multiple drug class resistance, then we can add on the integrase inhibitor after the fact without drawing a new specimen. Uh, so some labs can do that. So I think we'll just have to hold off on that. So at this point, I want to thank the panel um, for their participation. I think it was a lively discussion. I have a, about before we take a break, I have three demographic uh, studies and uh, slides and then a, a comment. Um, so we have the first demographic uh, slide. Uh, are you a member of an underrepresented minority group? Um, and this is, a, this is a single point mutation question, not a population-based question. Let you figure that out. Um, the second question then has to do is um, what percentage of your patients are members of an underrepresented minority uh, group? Okay, so um, over 10 percent, certainly the majority. Um, yeah. And up to 10% uh, with 91 to 100%. Interesting. And then the last demographic question is how many years have you attended the full day ISUSA spring advanced summer uh, San Francisco course? Number five, if you'll stand up, is a prize. You get a free pen. So Andrew, who's been attending all 18 of them, if you stand up. I think the, the, the course co-chair doesn't qualify. So uh, I have attended all 18. Okay. So I was the 1.7%. Okay. Uh, and last but not least. Um, You're standing up. I'm standing yeah. up as well. And there's Donna. Donna's the other one.